Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 953. To begin this week's show, Jay Jaffe and David Lorla get together to talk about their Hall of Fame ballots. The duo got to vote for the first time last year, and they talked about it back on episode 898, and the second time does not look like it is going to be any easier. Jay and David discuss things like all the external pressure felt on filling out a fair ballot, comparing the candidacies of Alex Rodriguez and David Ortiz, how difficult it would be to tell the story of baseball without some key players, and the inherent hypocrisy that must be navigated around in some cases. It really bothers me that Bud Selig is in the Hall of Fame because he presided over this whole messy era and he's been uh, anointed a Hall of Famer despite that and despite his participation in collusion. And if that doesn't matter, if he still has enough integrity for the Hall of Fame on the character clause, then I don't see where anything that Manny or A-Rod has done is is so egregious to eclipse that. You know, Bud and company stole $280 million from the players <laughs> until they give it back and until the, the owners give back the money that uh, they made off of the steroid users, I, you know, it's tough to feel that one side has a monopoly on righteousness or good conduct. So after that, Eric Longenhagen catches up with the intrepid Ben Clemens for a baseball chat, despite not much baseball. They talk about the second straight weird offseason and how they're getting a recharge a bit, though there is still lead and prospects to watch. Eric shares his interest in players like Werfin Abispo, Garrett Acton, and Colin Pochet as he and Ben get into a deeper conversation about the scientific relationship between arm angle and natural fastball movement. There are many old-school scouting-isms, and a lot of them have been proven correct in some form or another. Like, the idea that catcher framing was a thing at all was just a visually scoutable trait for the longest time until Mike Fast came along, and the idea that, like, Pitchers either have a good breaking ball or not. Turns out it's true. Like it took testing in a lab to figure out like, yeah, it turns out like you either have talent for spinning the baseball or you don't. And you really can't teach you to do it unless you start with almost zero idea of what you're doing. Like there are a bunch of them that have turned out to be true, but the whole downhill plane one is not true. But before we get to these segments, I must share with you my weekly urging to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. We not only have great merch, but you can of course get a Fangraphs ad-free membership, a great holiday gift for a friend or for yourself. It's the best way to browse a site at blazing fast speeds, as well as support the site and help us keep doing everything we're doing. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hello, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. As you've probably noticed if you've been reading Fangraphs since the lockout started, it's Hall of Fame ballot season. I've been digging into uh, this year's BBWAA ballot uh, with my profiles, as well as covering the two era committee elections that recently happened. And it just so happens I'm one of two people uh, on the Fangraphs staff that has a ballot, the other being my colleague David Lorela. David and I both joined the BBWAA in late 2010 when when we were writing for Baseball Prospectus, and last year we got our first chance to fill out the ballots. We found that it probably wasn't quite as easy as we'd imagined because there's so much outside pressure, because there's so much outside pressure to live up to what other people think about, about these candidates, as well as our own internal pressure and how we imagined that we would carry out this task once it was ours to do. David is here with me today to talk about his ballot, and to discuss some of the larger issues when it comes to voting for the Hall of Fame. Welcome, David. 
Hey, Jay, I know all about internal pressure. It extends <laughs> well, it, it extends well beyond filling out a, uh, a Hall of Fame ballot. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I think, every, every, you know, I think all, all writers suffer from some amount of self-imposed pressure for, for just about anything we do. And, and having an intellectually consistent ballot is, is just one aspect of it. No, absolutely. And uh, I don't know if you have filled yours out, Jay, yet, but, you know, we are talking on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, I actually filled my ballot out last night. I had filled out most of it about a week or so ago and wanted to chew on a few other names. And sure. I, I have it right here. I don't know that I want to reveal exactly okay. my decisions on, on this pod, although I think reading between the lines, I think listeners will have a pretty good idea of uh, where my check marks went. Right. I'm uh, yeah, I'm I'm a little bit further off from actually finalizing my ballot. I like to go through the these the series of profiles, at least the ones on the on the uh uh the serious candidates and decide do I still feel the same way about this person? Do I still feel the same way as I did about these guys as from last year because I've been doing this this uh ballot virtually ever since I started the Jaws project back in 2004. It'll probably be another 2 weeks before I finalize my ballot and I've got I I think more candidates than I can fit right now and only an inkling of how I might sort that out. So I'm not going to reveal my ballot on here either, but uh, listeners will probably get an idea of, of, of where I'm headed. And I am a large ballot guy. You know, I've stated that many times. So I very easily could have filled out 12 or 13 names on, on this ballot, depending on the parameters I would, would set for myself for, you know, the issues that go beyond just, you know, baseball. Right. You you had 10 last year, am I correct? I did have 10. Yeah. This year's ballot uh, will not look exactly the same right. for a couple of reasons. One is you have players like Ortiz and A-Rod eligible. And Omar Vizquel, who I know is very polarizing, you haven't voted for him. A lot of Fangrass listeners and readers think that he's not close to a Hall of Famer. I have disagreed with that, but he will not get my vote this year largely because of uh, the off-field issues that I know you have written about in the past. And if he was a clear-cut Hall of Famer, I could maybe say, okay, I can deal with that. There are other, you know, there are people like Ty Cobb, you know, et cetera, et cetera, in the Hall. But because he is marginal, that is one thing I will say now is no Omar Vizquel in my vote. Yeah, it's it's interesting. As as we speak here, I've uh, just put a pause on my uh, re-editing of last year's Vizquel profile. I had just published the Vizquel profile when I discovered uh, the allegations that his wife Blanca made on Instagram in October, accusing him of, of domestic abuse, which set off an investigation, which The Athletic published, uh, Katie Strang and, and and uh, Ken Rosenthal that detailed Vizquel's 2016 arrest as well as further allegations from Blanca regarding uh, a 2011 incident. And then a, subsequently, there was a lawsuit filed by the former Bat Boy of the Birmingham Barons who accused Vizquel of sexual harassment while he was managing the team in 2019. Some really disturbing stuff. So there's a lot of baggage now uh, attached to Vizquel. It already cost him something with regards to, to the votes last year. I believe he was trending at about 50%. He got 52% 
in on the uh, 2020 ballot, and he was polling at a similar share from the public ballots before the allegations were, or at least before the athletic report came out. And then after that, he dipped to about 37% the rest of the way, only dipped to about 49% overall. But uh, that was a step in the wrong direction for him. And I think a lot of voters who had voted for him, like yourself, felt that they needed to reevaluate, at least in the short term, while this stuff is further investigated and litigated and and whatever. So uh, you're not alone in that. I I had Vizquel well below my threshold for voting just based on the, on the statistical stuff. He is something like 42nd in Jaws, well below even the lowest ranked shortstop in the Hall of Fame, Rabbit Moranville. Maybe not well below, just only five spots below, but uh, not somebody that I would have prioritized in the first place. I've been kind of fighting the battle regarding the perception of Vizquel versus the what the stats actually tell us, that he's not the second coming of Ozzie Smith. So I don't really take any pleasure in the fact that, that Vizquel's candidacy has been thwarted by something that's far more serious than who gets into the Hall of Fame. But I do think this makes it, it's going to make it tougher for him to get elected and, and might be a while before he, his, his candidacy gets taken seriously. A hundred percent, Jay. No, I don't really have much to add to that. Let's start with the 10th year candidates on the ballot because they have been gumming up the works for so long, causing people to push aside other candidates that they might have supported and kind of taking the, the dialogue when it comes to the Hall of Fame ballot discussions in a direction that, you know, really has come to predominate. It, and that's these questions of character, you know, and, and, and authenticity. Where do you stand on on Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and how does that have an impact on 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 how you see the rest of these candidates? Boy, Jay, it's and I'm sure we talked about this uh, on the pod last year when we discussed the hall. It's difficult. I did vote for Bonds and and Clemens last year. I think that looking at this ballot which I have filled out, you know, there were four players on there without whom the story of baseball in this era could not be told. Bonds and Clements are, are two of them. Um, Alex Rodriguez is another. David Ortiz is the fourth. Arguably Sammy Sosa because of the home run battle with McGuire that one season mm-hmm. could be on there. But uh, yeah, it's tough. I mean, again, there are allegations on both. You know, not only just performance enhancement drugs, but also the Mindy McCreary thing with Clemens. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if a lot of these things are true. And I we're all battling that as voters. Right. So, yeah, I guess I'll just state flat out again. I will vote for Bonds and Clemens again. You know, the hard decision is Alex Rodriguez, as was the case last year with uh, Manny Ramirez, who I did vote for because of when they tested positive and being suspended for it. And I know I'm starting to ramble here a bit, but one thing that also should be noted, a lot of people may not remember that when Alex Rodriguez served his suspension, he actually sued MLB and somewhat inexplicably the Players Association. (laughs) In terms of, I don't know if integrity is the right word, but I think that maybe Mr. Rodriguez has done some pretty questionable things. Right. So you are you're you're not excluding the guys who tested positive. That's what it comes down to. You're basing your votes for them on the fact that you can't tell the story of baseball without them and that what they'd accomplished before they tested positive was enough to to sway you to vote for them. Is that do, do I have that clear? 
Yeah, by and large, that is true. You know, you talked about, uh, you know, internal arguments, internal strife. I certainly have dealt with that. You know, I've read a lot of good writers explaining why they have not voted for uh, some of these people. I understand it. But as I said, there are players with whom the story of baseball, you know, can't be told. And I think that to me is the has to be the defining, you know, position. Okay, fair enough. I I take a kind of a well, let's see. I have, I have kind of a rule of thumb, which is everybody, you know, is the allegations that pertain to players that happened before testing was in place in 2004 go in one, one category versus the allegations that came after testing was in place. So to, for me, especially with there being pressure to fit all the candidates I want to vote for into 10 spots, I'm ruling out Manny and A-Rod right now. It doesn't mean I won't vote for them at some point in the future. I have certainly a temptation, not only because, you know, I th- I agree with you. It's You can't really tell the story of baseball without them, but also because it really bothers me that Bud Selig is in the Hall of Fame because he presided over this whole messy era and he's been uh, anointed a Hall of Famer despite that and despite his participation in collusion. And if that doesn't matter, if he still has enough integrity for the Hall of Fame on the character clause, then I don't see where anything thing that Manny or A-Rod has done is is so egregious to eclipse that. You know, Bud and company stole $280 million from the players <laughs> until they give it back and until the, the owners give back the money that uh, they made off of the steroid users. I You know, it's tough to feel that one side has a monopoly on righteousness or good conduct. So I understand where you're going with this. Having put that in mind here with Bonds and Clemens and Manny and A-Rod, where, where do you fall on or David Ortiz, who's the top newcomer on, on this ballot besides A-Rod? I think that David Ortiz is a no-brainer. I think that the DH penalty uh, with war has always been a little too strong. I think to a certain degree, I think that war holds too much weight in a lot of Hall of Fame decisions because it is the quote-unquote fame, Hall of Fame. But when you look at Ortiz, it's obvious that what he has done in the postseason makes him one of the best known names in baseball, you know, a, a hero you know, to an entire uh, region. But another thing that, that feeds in to me is uh, just pure offensive value. If you're going to throw out the fact that he was a DH, you know, had he played 70 years ago, he would have been a first baseman and I think probably had as many career plate appearances as, as he did otherwise. But David Ortiz, I compared him to Alex Rodriguez recently, and they are basically equals at a lot of rate stats. You know, they had identical OBPs. I think Ortiz was two percentage points higher in slugging. I think A-Rod had a three-point edge in Woba. And Ortiz actually had a slight edge, maybe just one point in WRC+. So when I hear people say that, well, Ortiz had big moments, but he wasn't really that great of a hitter, I say bullcrap. He was an absolutely <laughs> impactful hitter. He was one of the best of the generation. Yeah, the yeah, their slash stats are, are very close. And in terms of OPS+, plus, they're one point apart, 141 for Ortiz, 140 for A-Rod. And that, that's after we've accounted for... Uh, the impact of Ortiz taking half his plate appearances at Fenway Park. You know, I when I wrote uh, the Cooperstown casebook, I had Ortiz pretty much in my no pile. He's nine points short in Jaws by the by the current measure. He was similar. It was similar then too. I do think there's something to be said for you know the positional penalty within WAR for for designated hitters being 
too high because of the later research that has been, that has shown you know the pinch hitting penalty and the DH penalty you know the difficulty of sitting on the bench and coming to bat. Uh, hitters just do not perform as well as they normally do under other circumstances. And there may be a confounding factor in there, which is that if you're not playing the field, you might actually be, you know, at less than full health. So there there could be something to that. But, you know, it, it lessens my lessens my desire, I think, to to go so strictly by the numbers. And as I've, you know, maintained, obviously, Jaws does not capture everything about his player's case, certainly doesn't capture any of the postseason. And I think uh, it could be argued that, that you know, no player of this generation has had a, a greater postseason impact with the possible exception of Kurt Schilling. No player has had a greater impact on the postseason than David Ortiz, who was part of three title teams in Boston, who had, uh, you know, numerous memorable moments, including leading the charge in the in the only th- uh, three games to none comeback in playoff history in the uh, 2004 ALCS against the Yankees. You know, which as a fan, I certainly felt the other end of, and it bothered me then. But uh, you know, as as a as a historian and as a as an analyst, you know, I I can only marvel at it at this point. So I think I've softened with regards to Ortiz. I'm still not 100 percent sure where I'm going to land on him. I'm kind of keeping myself in suspense. But I, I I agree with you. You can't really tell the tell the history of baseball without David Ortiz, and that's going to be a factor when I do my final cutdowns here. I also think you know after last year's shutout. The idea of making sure that there's somebody from among the living can well, I guess we've got two living candidates from the era committee and Jim Cott and Tony Oliva. It would be nice to have one that was below 83 years old and uh, draws a, a, a younger generation to Cooperstown because that area has been hard hit by the pandemic uh, and the uh, uh, the loss of 2020 induction weekend and the minimization of last year's induction ceremony, which was on a weekday and was sparsely attended. So the idea of having a you know a, a fresh honoree such as Ortiz or Scott Rowland does have some appeal. Speaking of which, let's let let's touch on on Rowland here next. Uh, he's he's the uh, top returning vote getter on on whom there is no controversy attached or no major controversy attached. Where do you fall on him? Where I where do I fall on Scott Rowland? He was an automatic checkmark for me as he okay. was last year, and ironically, he is not famous in, in all caps like players like Ortiz. Which is one reason that I think the fame, you know, the fame stats argument to me is, is so fascinating. Like, let's circle back to uh, Jim Rice was elected. I know that when he finally got in, people were comparing him to his longtime teammate, Dwight Evans, who will be eligible on whatever iteration of the Veterans Committee he falls on in a few years. You know, Dwight Evans, this is something I looked up just very recently. The average Hall of Famer position player has 67 B war. Evans has 67.1, you know, and this is despite the terrible defensive metrics, which I'm highly skeptical on. You know, Evans won all the gold gloves and he, and I, that you have to take gold gloves with a grain of salt, obviously, but I think most people would agree that he was a good defender in a park with a, a difficult right field, but Despite Evans perhaps not grading out as well defensively as I think that he that that he might have, but my overall point being, Dwight Evans, you know, is he a Hall of Famer if he is statistically a shade better than Jim Rice? I would be inclined to argue that Rice has a better better Hall of Fame credentials because he was a more impactful, famous player than a steady you know producer like like Dwight Evans. So. 
you know, this has nothing to do with this year's vote, at least not, you know, direct directly so. Right. I, you know, I, I kind of trip over the, the, the tautology of, of, of the fame thing. Is it, you know, was he famous? Yeah. I mean, okay, fine. Uh, all these guys are famous to a level and, and Scott Rowland, was he as famous as, as Barry Bonds? No, but that's a, you know, that's kind of a ridiculous yardstick to use. Scott Rowland played in seven all-star games, won eight gold gloves. You know, the only third baseman who have won more gold gloves than Scott Rowland are Brooks Robinson, Mike Schmidt, and now Nolan Arenado. You know, I would argue that Scott Rowland is reasonably famous. He was on, you know, World Series winning teams. He was Rookie of the Year. You know, like I said, there's there was a lot that Scott Rowland did. And did he achieve the kind of transcendent fame that, that marks him as a face of the game? No. But I, I do think he was probably famous enough uh, during the course of, a, of, of his 17-year career that I wouldn't ding him for that. No, and again, to me, he is a no-brainer checkmark for the Hall of Fame. Right. Is Bobby Abreu, quote-unquote, famous? Is he a Hall of Famer? Yeah, I, I think Bobby Abreu is one who struggles more with, it, with, with the fame argument because he was you know, so often passed over uh, and underappreciated when it came to the, to the all-star berths here. I think Abreu was an all-star just two times uh, and won one gold glove and, and unfortunately then was largely obscure. But then you know, we get back to Omar Vizquel and, the, and the, the fame of Omar Vizquel. He was only a three-time all-star. So this stuff is so subjective and, and perceptual and I'm sure – you know, to some extent, probably has something to do with regional impacts and, you know, how much you got to see this guy uh, when, you know, before, you know, in the period before we had baseball available, uh, every single game available via MLB TV and, and extra innings and, and all of that stuff, um, because I think that's leveled the playing field a lot. It quite probably has, Jay. I know that if you look at our war leaderboard for outfielders over the past 50 seasons, you know, Abreu falls in right between Dave Winfield and Andre Dawson, both players who got a lot more publicity over the course of right. his career, and, right. both, and both are in the Hall of Fame. Right. Okay. Uh, let's let's move on here. I know that he's not anybody's anybody's favorite to discuss here, but but where, where are you with, with Kurt Schilling at this point? <laughs> Oh boy. Yeah, we we discussed that last year, Jay. I don't know that I need need to repeat anything that I said last year. <laughs> I guess I will leave it at it's easy to exclude somebody from a ballot when there are more than 10 people that you think are deserving, which I do, and Kurt Schilling as Jose uh, De Jesus Ortiz of Arasquina, you know, very nicely explained when he did not vote for him this year. Schilling asked to not be voted on. He didn't want to be on the ballot. So uh, let's just say that I respect that. <laughs> okay, I think we can we can we can move on from there to the rest of your picks. Sammy Sosa and and Gary Sheffield. How do you feel about those guys? That was tough. Let me think. I voted for Sosa and Sheffield both last year. Right. With you know Ortiz and A Rod moving on to the ballot, deciding that Todd Helton was going to get a check mark this year. A year ago, after I submitted the ballot, I know that I wrote on social media that, hey, in retrospect, that was a mistake. Um, I will vote for Todd Helton next year. Uh -huh. And I did. So the ad addition of some of these, you know, new new votes, you know, new stronger candidates to me, I think pushes people like Sosa and Sheffield, you know, and Jeff Kent off of my ballot, despite the fact that I think that they are realistically Hall of Famers. 
you had Sheffield last year, you're dropping him, you're dropping Sosa, but you're adding Helton. So two other candidates that you did include on your ballot last year were Billy Wagner and Andrew Jones. Do you still feel uh, the same way about them? Are they going to get your checkmark? No, definitely. Wagner, I think, despite the relatively short career and no postseason, no quality postseason, I, I think his numbers stand out. I think most listeners are going to know just how dominant he was. Andrew Jones is somebody that I went back and forth with quite a bit when I was looking at the Sheffields and, and Sosa's and Kent's. But I did vote for Jones last year. He hasn't done anything to dispel his quality. Uh-huh. Obviously, Sheffield and Sosa ha- hasn't either. But right. yeah, I think with the defensive metrics showing that Andrew Jones was one of the greatest defensive center fielders ever. And he had a lot of home runs. That's that's a Hall of Famer. Okay. Just a couple a couple more here. I know uh, you you might not have room for them on your ballot, but I just wanted to mention or wanted to see you know the extent to which you've thought about them. Joe Nathan, uh, the the first another first year candidate on this year's ballot, has uh, reasonably strong c- credentials, and and for a while there was was uh, you know had a case as the best reliever in the game. Did you give him any consideration? I guess the best answer would be very briefly. The numbers are good. It's hard for closers to get in, as you know. Sure. I don't think he's anywhere near the level of Wagner. You know, I think Papelbon and Nathan are fairly similar in, in impact. I just don't think that Nathan had quite enough to push him over the edge for me. Okay. He's somebody who's in play for mine, given that I'm sort of using a, a w, combined WPA and war measure, but I haven't figured out exactly where I stand on him. He's in play for one of my final spots here. One more thing I wanted to add. Did you give much consideration to the to the, the starting pitchers on the ballot besides Schilling, namely Mark Burley, Tim Hudson, and Andy Pettit? That, again, fits into the yes, but only fairly briefly. I know uh-huh. that after last year's results came out, I read some very well-written pieces on just how good, especially Mark Burley was. Uh-huh. He's maybe a little bit like Dwight Evans in that you see the name, you think about their career, and you don't think that's a Hall of Famer. When you dig deeper into the numbers, and I think maybe that's true with Tim Hudson as well, fantastic careers. You know, Hudson did play with the Braves, so he had a lot of postseason exposure. You know, but I think those guys do fall short, as does a guy like Tim Lincecum, right? Who, who for a few years was an absolutely fascinating pitcher to watch and a very good pitcher. Right. Okay. Well, that's a pretty thorough rundown of the candidates that you have uh, under consideration. As you can, as you you listening at home can hear, or wherever you're listening, there's certainly enough quality candidates that it's very tough to fit to whittle it down to ten. Uh, and fit them onto a single ballot. I think uh, David has done a good job of of grappling with the uh, the candidates and the controversies here. Uh, I know this is some of this is still ahead for me. And honestly, I'm not even sure how my ten are going to look come uh, December 27th or so uh, when I when I fill out my ballot. Yeah, and Andy Pettit was pretty good too. I should have uh, mentioned him when I said that. You know, Burley and and Hudson. I did look at them. Yeah, Pettit, fantastic career, but to me. You know, you put him in a different market than where he played most of his career. And I think he's looked at, you know, he would not have the the fame that he has now. For Pettit, a lot of that fame comes from the postseason stuff. And he had some great postseason outings, uh, helped the Yankees win some World Series. And he also had uh, some major duds in the postseason, such as the 2001 World Series. So uh, it kind of cuts both ways. He ended up with very similar stats in the postseason uh, to what he did in the regular season. 
Right. And I know, Jay, that we're probably over time here. But let's touch really briefly on uh, on Ortiz one last time. Suppose, okay. suppose Ortiz did not play in the postseason at all. Suppose he was Ted Williams, who got who played injured in, in one postseason. Would that make him an automatic no for the Hall of Fame? In your eyes, it would. I would have a harder. T- I would have a much harder time justifying a spot for David Ortiz on my ballot. I don't know that everybody would. What five hundred forty-one home runs uh, or, or whatever that is is that's a lot. And and he was a, a great hitter. But yes, if he didn't have the postseason impact, going solely by uh, the value stuff and the and and the other stuff, I think I would have a much harder time putting him in my top ten. Not to say it would be a hundred percent no, but. I would be prioritizing other players ahead of him. Even with uh, Ortiz having almost identical offensive rate stats as uh, A-Rod. Well, Those are my closing thoughts, Jay. Yeah, I, I think, think that uh, David Ortiz <laughs> is a no-brainer Hall of Famer. Yeah, I think to, to me, you know, the difference is A-Rod was playing shortstop and third base at, at the time when, when Ortiz was, was DHing. So as we see with the value, there's, there's, there's a significant gulf between the two. You know, if you can hit like David Ortiz and play a competent left side of the infield, whew, you're, you're miles beyond the Hall of Fame, you know, the, 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 the basic qualification for the Hall of Fame. But obviously, again, there are other factors with, with Alex Rodriguez as well. We could debate this for hours, couldn't we, Jay? We could. We could. I wish we, I wish we had some beer here. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, that about wraps it up here. I think we've we've gone on long enough. David, thank you so much for uh, for sharing a preview of your ballot with us here. Uh, look forward to seeing how it, how it pans out. Uh, one last question: Do you think we're going to get anybody elected this year from the BBWA? I hope we do. I'm not much of a uh, better or predictor, but I guess I think yes. I think we're going to. I know there are a few people and a very small number that we know of you know, who are over 75, I think we will will end up with, with one or two. Okay. Thanks so much, David. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. Hello, listeners. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen coming to you from the annals of the Fangraphs Southwest Desert Vista Compound uh, as there's extreme tree trimming going on out on the street uh, outside the house. I'm joined today by the intrepid Ben Clemens. Ooh, ben, how are intrepid. you doing? I'm doing well. I'm feeling very intrepid at the moment. Did you notice on that Matt Damon crypto commercial that they've eliminated some of the verbiage around that, like as if the sentence was too long for people to understand? <laughs> He's like the four words whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the brave, which I'm sure, pretty sure it's the bold. Look, I don't want to question Matt Damon, but I'm 100% sure you're right. That commercial is just absurd. I have dabbled in some cryptocurrencies, but not because Matt Damon told me to. It is definitely, uh, I don't know if it's, it's not a thing that I'm comfortable about talking about on the podcast because like... It is beyond my grasp still. I haven't really sat down and been like, all right, so a blockchain is what again? <laughs> like, so I don't know if this is a thing that I will be behind blocks. on. Why are they chained? Yeah. Or if this is just a thing that like the ease of entry is so easy that like it'll dilute the overall, you know, stuff and there won't really be impact long term. I don't know, but. It is really amazing to see how much money these companies are spending. I mean, that suggests that it's probably not a great deal for, you know, chumps like us. Yeah, I, I'm i avoiding. I'm avoiding. It's, I 
the sense I get is that it is a de- destabilization thing, potentially, but also, like, I don't know. I truly don't know. Oh, I should mention, um, Eric and I are not financial advisors, so yeah. <laughs> should you ignore all the stuff we just said about crypto and want to buy it, even though I think we kind of said not to, consult a financial advisor. <laughs> my, my tendency is to just talk about the stuff that I really, truly feel confident like espousing on a podcast that a lot of people listen to, and that's you know, even it is so narrow that it is not, I won't even like talk about Hall of Fame stuff with any degree of certitude. Like that is Jay's realm. That is certain other people's realm. Like mine is just these random 21 year old fourth round college relievers who blew up low A. So how have you been doing? We haven't talked in a little while. There hasn't been any relevant baseball news since the flurry of stuff that we got right before the lockout was enacted. My offseason has been progressing pretty much like normal, but what is it that you have been trying to do during this? You know, seemingly since you've been brought on full time at Fangraphs, like we haven't had a normal <laughs> yeah. set of months. It felt like it was going to be like 2020, and then yeah, that, that, that didn't quite pan out. This has been a weird time because it's not like we'd have a lot to do normally now, but. I feel like there would be the occasional free agent signing and you could kind of pitch what trades teams might do. And teams are making trades in December, generally. Now, instead, I don't really know how much can you write about the lockout. It sounds like even the two teams, even the two sides rather, just aren't very interested in negotiating at the moment. Maybe they will in a month, but it does feel like I'm not saying that I'm opposed to Major League Baseball being shut down for the month of December. It's not actually that weird. It's the month that is farthest from baseball, but it does feel weird just because it hasn't happened before. Um, I've watched like a little bit of Leadome, but I don't know, like I just haven't been able to buy into it too much. Like the, the crowds are fun and baseball is interesting, but I have a limit to how much baseball I can watch in a year. And I kind of like using the offseason to recharge normally. Yes, for whatever reason, maybe at some point I should try to do this. There was definitely a recharging feeling that I felt coming out of the other side of like the mid-2020 shutdown, basically when they started playing ball at the alt site again, and a lot of it was streaming, I was mainlining it, you know, sometimes three screens at a time. I was living at the last house I was in before I had been booted, and... Like, I had two screens going, and then I had, like, the $100 wall projector running behind the my TV, oh, like, man. on the wall itself, like, watching three alt-site streams at a time, the Royals, the Mariners, and, like, who else was doing them? I just, I was really deep in it uh, from the time off. Like, it felt, I had yeah. taken a tolerance break, basically. That is intense. Off of the off of the the back of it was a lot of fun, and now I'm I've just been you know continuing since then. Um, I've been watching the Dominican Winter League pretty consistently. I folks, if you have an MLB TV subscription, uh, you can just hop on to the app and and watch games in the uh, in the evenings or the late afternoons. We're down to the last uh, week of play basically, and follow the Cespedes Barbecue Kids. They give a good rundown of like the situation at hand here for the last week and what the, what the playoff scenarios are. Here's here's a guy that I want to run past you, though, that it, he pitches in the Dominican Winter League. He's pitched in Mexico and in other foreign leagues. He's 37 years old. Interesting. Ben Lindbergh a while ago sent me a Slack DM before he published his thing on quantifiable deception. 
and he asked me about an A's prospect who will be on their list that should come out uh, probably the day before people are, are listening to this, named Garrett Acton. So having done the, the Cubs list with a guy named Zach Lee, the A's list with Garrett Acton, and then watching this guy, Werfin Obispo. That's, I want everyone to look at Werfin Obispo. Google that. Find his minor league stats. This guy was in affiliated ball for a little while with like Milwaukee, Cincinnati. He's been in Japan. Look at this guy's career numbers. This guy's 37. He's never sniffed the big leagues. He's been pretty good in Mexico. Jeez. His delivery is super duper deceptive. I actually sent someone a link to it, some video that I clipped of him, and I'll send it to, to you guys in Slack. But folks should uh, should try to find video of this guy throwing. This guy's delivery and the action on his fastball is very similar to Garrett Acton with Oakland, who you know was an undrafted free agent who blew up during the course of the regular season here in 2021. So I don't know. It's hard. This is just a guy who I'm advocating people in this age where even the best teams need fringe arms at the bottom of their roster to come up and pitch in the event of injury. Like this is still an interesting guy. He's still sitting about 92 in the Dominican winter league at age 37 with the super duper funky delivery that got hitters don't seem to pick up. So I'm posing the video in the slack so that Dylan and, and Ben can see it. And I will make sure that we get video uploaded of him so that Dylan can put it in the, uh, I'm curious what kind of funky delivery this is. Yeah. I have not seen uh Garrett Acton pitch, unsurprisingly. There is Garrett Acton video on the Fangraphs YouTube page from Instruct, so it's so it's from late October, November at the at the latest here. Got it. You're gonna want to skip to like the 35 second mark or something like that to get closer to the actual video. And I'll make again, I'll make sure that Dylan has some to post a link. But anyway, like this is my pet project here is trying to get this guy signed. <laughs> like I've just thrown his name out there to a lot of different people oh. now over the last week or so where like this guy's interesting still at age 37 and I can see how it works. So this is like where my spare time is gone when I'm not thinking about just like the Cubs prospect list or whatever. Um, it's interesting. It's like a, it's almost like he's, well, he's obviously hiding his arm, right? Yeah. It's so deceptive, but it's like, it's like a short arm that's gone so short. It goes backwards. He's also an extreme cross body guy. Like, there's just a big hip turn. He really is showing his back and butt to the hitter Yeah. as he's striding home. And then he shows the ball to them, too. Like, he's holding the ball down out behind him. And hitters can presumably look Yeah, I'm not convinced it's very easy to pick something up behind his butt before it whips around him, though, right? Yeah. Like, that almost might be, like, unhelpful to say, oh, there's the ball. It's behind his butt. Oh, he's spinning. Like, it's a very strange delivery. This is also the type of guy who the camera angle of traditional broadcasts, which is what the Dominican Winter League still largely uses, where it's not quite center cut yeah. from center field, does not do the extreme nature of his delivery justice. Like, if we were to watch this from straight on or from behind home plate, I think it would it would be even more incredible to see exactly how weird this guy's delivery is. DJ Hers, the the Cubs prospect... A lefty out of high school who they drafted a couple of years ago, developed a big, big changeup during the course of, I guess, like late 2020 and then into 2021, was like a fastball slider guy coming out. And now his best pitch is the changeup. He's a left-handed version of this type of thing where like it is an extreme cross-body delivery in a way that makes like it limits his projection to relief probably, but it is definitely a value add 
in terms of like hitters not being able to pick up the ball. It is very disorienting. DJ Hurst in 20 starts, 80 innings, struck out 131 guys, split between low and high A in 2021. Basically by, you know, huge change-up development and then by being incredibly deceptive. So this is, I think, the next thing. Uh, some of it is done by watching teams behave and some of it is done by, you know, reading some of the stuff that folks put out in terms of, like, pitch design, research, stuff like that. Uh, some of the papers yeah. that folks at Driveline will write. But after all of the players with, like, the cut-and-carry fastballs, invert action, breaking balls became known, this was, you know, a way of getting swings and misses, especially in the zone. The market for other types of players has started to grow, and one of them is these guys who seem to have an extreme level of deception, maybe as as our buddy Ben Lindbergh posits, like, can be quantified. You had to guess how you try to quantify deception. How would you try to go about I talked to Ben about this when he was writing that article. It seems really difficult. I think you would want a lot of like 3D cameras, basically. Because the problem, you can't really do it analytically off of pitch data. Because you'd just be getting residuals, right? You'd say the residual is the deception. I guess you would. Yes, I think that that's where you'd want to start if you were just looking at a giant spreadsheet of pitch data. But the problem is that like, how do you separate deception from sequencing from you know any other thing that we're just not quite able to track by looking at the pitch level data on its own i think that's very tough so i think what you'd want to do is like like basically have a bunch of cameras that you could figure out what this looks like from the eyes of the guy at the plate and then see you know like time from seeing ball to pitch release or whatever right yeah it's a really hard problem to solve and i i think that it's almost one of these things where, yeah, you could probably quantify it and maybe teams have been able to with extremely advanced camera work. But I would put a lot of stock into watching a guy and saying, you know, batters can't pick this up. It's an invisible. Yeah. The, so you have certain guys who have like a blend of both things. Like, so Colin Poche, who has been gone for a little while because he needed TJ. Folks, that's another one. If you don't know who Colin Poche is, yeah, look at his minor league numbers. He throws the it, ball from space almost, like right. straight. And down. he's like sitting ninety-two, so it's not like obviously dominant stuff. His fastball just has other traits. But this is a vertical action guy. This is like a high arm slot guy who creates like extreme flat angle on his stuff, and that is part of why he's so dominant. So the one version of this that I've heard about that is doable via just like the big old pitch data spreadsheet is what is the delta between the guy's arm slot basically Mm -hmm. and the shape of his fastball movement so if you have a high arm slot this is the josh Hader effect correct yeah so Hader is low slot but creating backspin when most low slot guys are creating tail and then the other version of it is like Ian Anderson's changeup is a version of this where he is a vertical arm slot guy who's creating lateral action on his changeup. Devin Williams is another another right. example of this where the way he's cutting, he's like supinating basically around the baseball. Or no, he's pronating, excuse me. I, I don't know why I still mix them up. Supinating is, is where you're creating like cut slide action and pronating is where you're like coming yeah. across the, you know, your hand is like, your wrist is turning inside. And that's like Devin Williams and Ian Anderson and those guys are creating that type of like lateral action on the baseball, even though they have a vertical arm slot. So the difference between your slot and the shape you're creating on the ball 
is a type of deception because a vertical arm slot guy would typically be creating, you know, ride and, and right. vertical action. So that's like more quantifiable for sure. Yes. But I agree with you that like the real way to do it is if I had a high speed camera in the exact same location, like a perfect location behind home plate for every pitcher in baseball, then yeah, you could count the number of frames. You could use like a visual machine learning algorithm right. to count the number of frames between when, you know, foot strike, when the, when the pitcher's front foot lands and then when you see the ball or exactly. when, you know, something like that. Like you'd have to decide when to start the clock and when yeah, to Yeah, you could also do like frames between when you first see the ball and when the ball's released. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think you could do this with the stat cast feed that teams get just because it's taking snapshots of the ball. And you could just say like how many milliseconds between uh, – like, you'd have to make a 3D model to figure out when the batter could see it. But the guys who disguise the ball till very late, that's a different kind of deception, but it is a pretty effective one. And I, I feel like a lot of the cross-body guys, that's why they play up against same-handed batters, right? It's because it's just coming... Like, it's actually not very easy to pick that ball up before it's released because of where it's coming from. Yeah, like, I bet I'm pulling up... Wait, I have a, I have a deception question for you that these high fastballs made me think of. So I wrote about John Means last week, and if you're looking at, like, induced rise or whatever, he is just one of the best pitchers in baseball at it. Like, he adds a ton of rise to his fastball, and he doesn't actually miss that many bats despite that. And he doesn't throw it that softly anymore. He throws, like, I don't know, he sits 93, 94, I think. And my conjecture is that he just releases the ball too high. Yep. And so it just has, like, downward tilt, essentially. It has too steep an angle for his own yes. good. Basically, too steep of a negative vertical approach angle. Of all, right? Like of all of, there are many old school scouting isms, and a lot of them have been proven correct in some form or another. Like the idea that catcher framing was a thing at all was right. just a visually scoutable trait for the longest time until Mike Fast came along, and the idea that like pitchers either have a good breaking ball or not. Turns out it's true, like, it took testing in a lab to figure out, like, yeah, it turns out, like, you either have talent for spinning the baseball or you don't, and you really can't teach you to do it, unless you start with almost zero idea of what you're doing. Like, there are a bunch of them that have turned out to be true, but the whole downhill plane one is not true. There are some instances, I think, where you do want an extreme amount of, like, downhill angle on... Your pitch, like there are probably some guys who have other characteristics where it's what you want. But for the most part, if you have backspinning stuff, if you have like vertical action stuff like John Means does, you want a guy with a really low drop and drive delivery. The flatter the angle of his pitch coming in, yeah, the better. It's very interesting because I think it makes his breaking pitches work a little bit better because he doesn't actually do a great job getting like getting sync on them as it were i mean sync is probably the wrong word getting downward movement but just where he's throwing it from creates some extra downward movement from the eyes of the batter right like like it looks like his slider is very steep even though it doesn't actually have that much break because it's coming from so high right yeah i think that's right but it's interesting like i don't know i don't know that's the thing you can fix you can't be like well john what if you just stepped a foot further towards home while you threw like he can't presumably just do that Right, the the way you'll see some teams make changes to guys' deliveries that alter either their place on the rubber, like first base side, third base side, 
and or their stride direction. So like Ubaldo Jimenez is a great visual example of a guy who like, if folks have watched Werfin Obispo video at this point in the pod or found Garrett Acton video on YouTube, Ubaldo Jimenez, like those guys close off their front side in an extreme way. Whereas Mm -hmm. Ubaldo Jimenez and like Ryan Jensen of the Cubs, there's like a whole other class of guy who opens that front side to an extreme degree where they're not striding in a straight line from their, you know, their back foot on the the rubber and then where their front foot lands does not make like a nice straight line toward the plate. They're opening up in a huge way to kind of like tilt out and like have a vertical arm slot, but that while they're also being low to the ground, like they're clearing their front side out in, in an extreme way. And so sometimes that is, that is helpful. And so like watching John means, who pitches from the extreme third base side of the rubber and more or less has a straight delivery home. Like, yeah, you know, his, he doesn't have like very athletic lower half use. It's pretty simplistic. Yeah. He's one of those guys who strikes me as like his changeup does a lot of damage in part because of the incongruity between like what you'd expect the movement of his pitches to be and the way his changeup sort of diverges from that. Well, I think it's interesting that, yeah, he, his changeup works really well because it looks a lot like his fastball, but actually gets decent, like, sideways movement, as it were, like decent fade. Right. You'd expect his other stuff to have, like, his, and it does, like, his other stuff just has more, like, vertical action, like you said. Yeah. He is upright, and so he creates tumble and depth on his breaking ball almost artificially. Mackenzie Gore is in this bucket. Ian Anderson is in this bucket, too. Like, those are guys who spin their breaking balls only around 2,000 RPMs way 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 below average but the at least in anderson's case like it is perfectly over the top and he's a pretty like high release tall and fall guy and so it ends up creating like a lot of depth on that pitch anyway even though the movement is kind of blunt and droopy it's not like a power steven strasberg you know ridiculous breaking ball where you see it go up and then it comes down because it's just spinning with such ferocity it is just more like artificially created it's interesting where like, it's interesting what those guys should do because it does seem like that type of release makes your fastball worse, but you have to throw the fastball still, right? Like, you can't just not throw it because that's what creates the deception on the other pitches and the changeup especially. Like, should they just add cutters? I think, I'm not sure. I think that everybody's individual answer is probably different, yeah. but like some of the pitching approach answers that I've seen guys try to achieve is pitching backward. Like if your fastball utility is limited to, Hey, I can only really, if I want to work in the zone, mostly with my fastball, I'm going to get hurt. Like not physically hurt, but like the hitters are going to punish me. So this is what means does. My fastball utility is only at the top of the zone. So I have to work with my other stuff in the zone, strike one, strike two. And then my fastball is a put away pitch. Yeah. So that's almost exactly what means does with his. And it doesn't really work. Like, he has the highest rate of throwing his fastball out of the zone when he's ahead in the count in baseball. So he's doing exactly what you're talking about. And batters don't really swing at it. <laughs> because it it's like, it's got this big downward tilt to it. So they kind of know where it's going more. He doesn't actually, like, like, if it ends up above the zone, it started way above the zone. Interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting question because... Like, I was looking into, like, hey, I think, you know, a lot of John Means' measurables, 
like pitch measurables look awesome. Like why isn't he, and I mean, he is really good, but why isn't he even better? And I, I kind of think that it's just, it's very limiting to have that, uh, that kind of like very high release point. It doesn't seem to me like it's limiting in the extreme. Like you, you could figure something out, but it does make it harder to have like a, a really wipe out fastball or like a really just killer. Like you're going to just blow it by guys up in the zone. It's just tough. Like if you're releasing the ball so high and it's going to end up above the zone and it's rising, like right, it's where, there. yeah, like it's just starting out a million miles in the air and the hitter's probably like, ah, no, no way. Yeah. The, the fastball utility piece of this. And so like basically John means was not ever on like a prospect list or anything like that. It was I mean, a yeah. oversight. <laughs> he also started throwing harder, but yeah, some of it is he started throwing harder and some of it is the previous Orioles regime was not as switched on in terms of like pitch location and usage and how to, how to determine what is best. Like it's not, this is like as, as well, John means has basically been optimized at this point, right? Like, and he just was so under optimized, sub optimized by the previous Orioles regime. And so many guys were, Right. Like that it was almost impossible to identify him while before he started throwing harder. I mean, his changeup was probably always good. Yeah. I'd argue that like it seems like the main thing they did was just say, you should just work your fastball off your changeup like way more. Like your breaking balls are kind of okay, but just throw a ton of changeups and fastballs and maybe some sliders to other lefties. And it seems like that did a lot. I wonder if there's going to be like a like another evolution if he goes to a smart team where they can just figure out a different pitch he can throw to righties. Because it's just so weird. Like, the fastball numbers look really good, and then they just, it just it's not that good. I really liked, um, I'm blanking on it, I wrote it, I think Alex Chamberlain, like a look at where vertical approach angle matters most. And it's like, basically like the Walker Bueller style of pitching, where if you throw a really flat pitch, but it's low in the zone, batters take it a lot. I don't really know what that means for like, can you throw a, a really steep rising fastball and miss low and batters will swing at it? Like, maybe. Maybe Jamin should work low with his four-seamer. It sounds strange. Yeah, I don't know. I think um, I think that there, there's, there was always going to be a, de- a delayed response from the hitting population to the way pitchers approach them. Yeah. And, like, there's almost, like, a, not a cheat code, but, like, the shorter levered hitters who are better adept at, like getting to those top side fastballs are the ones who are in vogue right now. And it's, it's in our work on the prospect side too. Like I'm just more confident in guys whose swings can get on top of and not like literally, but like, that's the thing that the hitter needs to be thinking about as they're dealing with all these rising fastballs at the top of the zone is like, I need to try to get on top of this pitch. Right. And, but at some point, like there will just be a response to some of those changes that, yeah, maybe it does involve something happening at the bottom of the strike zone and guys whose swings have a lot of scoop will become more useful again. Ultimately, like narrowing a hitter's approach is going to lower their ceiling. If you told 18-year-old Miguel Cabrera, hey, you hit the ball hardest and in the air the most when you only swing at stuff in this narrow part of the zone, you should try to do that more. Like you're limiting his ceiling. His ability over time to have the feel and hitting skill that he ended up with where he could basically take you out anywhere in the zone, like, came through allowing him to try to do that stuff over time. Like, 
you know, you don't know who's going to be able to, to do that. So limiting hitters approach when they're too young is probably suboptimal. But the thing that I've become more sensitive to now is the guys who have that tailing sinker to their arm side and that like looks like it's coming in close to the middle of the zone and then is running in and down mm-hmm. on uh, hitters in a way that like they can't get their barrel to. So Yoan Duran with Minnesota is a guy like this. Uh, Caleb Killian with the Cubs, who came over from the Giants in, in the Chris Bryant trade, has two fastballs. He calls one of them explicitly a cutter, I think, based on Lorla's interview with him. Yeah, we saw him get hit around a little bit in Fall Stars. but We saw him get hit around in Fall Stars, and then a week later in the championship game, he threw six perfect innings. But yeah, like he's one where he's a tough evaluation because, especially in the environments in which I've seen Caleb Killian, which was 2020 instructs with San Francisco, basically three innings at a time when he was sitting 91-93, and then in the Fall League where you're also not likely to go very deep in games very often because of, you know, it's Fall League, so you're probably going to go three, maybe four innings if you're a starter in the middle of the your workload there, and then you're going to get an inning at a time guys the rest of the way. Right. What Caleb Killian does, throw strikes at a near elite level, like goes underappreciated, but basically Caleb Killian has a bunch of pretty fringe average secondary pitches and th- has like elite command of two well demarcated fastballs that seem like they just diverge from one another. He's just throwing 95 sometimes with a lot of tail and sometimes with some natural cut. And that is enough often to like for hitters to seem confused by it and take really gross, ugly swings and put like lousy contact into play. And yeah, like this is the type of thing where it's like, I'm not really sure how to, to, value this guy it is not the nice clean like you know three plus pitch no doubt starter he has an elite trait in his command and then he's got like this divergent fastball utility that is really interesting and so yeah like some of this stuff is the way some of these profiles sort of went away for a little while and now we're coming back as teams figure out how to develop like a hyper efficient ground ball guy basically and like have a desire to to develop that again when for the longest time they they did not, maybe not the longest time, definitely like a five-year window here. Like the smart teams were not interested in guys like Caleb Killian. They yeah. were interested in Zach Gallen. Right. I mean, also good. Also good, yeah. Gosh, if only Zach Gallen could stay healthy. Folks should look up the slow-mo YouTube video of Zach Gallen on the Fangraphs page too to look at his weird uh, skin flapping. Like for whatever reason, the underside of his his like bicep area is like, it's like his skin flaps in a weird way when he throws it's uncomfortable i'm probably not gonna look at that his weenus is is sagging (laughs) (laughs) so i'm gonna send you this this gigantic load of like college and minor league data from the last couple years here uh today so you have something to do but do you have any anything else that like is percolating in your brain about stuff you might want to write about or that you're thinking about baseball wise even while there's no transactional activity i've been curious about kind of guys where maximum exit velocity just kind of lies and hmm. people have written a lot about this with like like all the various like dynamic hard hit rates and stuff but i was looking at like the hardest hit home runs this year and it's a bunch of like really strong dudes and andy young and i was like andy young strong you know he was just a minor league rule five guy though <laughs> right <laughs> i think that's kind of interesting right yep like this guy who oh i guess he's andrew young now oh he's grown up drew but it's just very interesting to me that, like, it's a bunch of these, like, Aaron Judge types and, like, this guy who 
just really can't stick anywhere and whose main tool is not his power. And I, I thought that was quite interesting. I, like, I wonder what went on in that one. Yeah, it's the same on the minor league side. If I'm looking at the guys who are towards the top of the um, the like high-end exit velo leaderboards from 2019 and then 2021, you have some guys on there who everyone knows or will know. I'm not gonna. There's a name on here who I think will be on our top 100. Who uh, I'm not gonna give away just yet. But like O'Neill Cruz is towards. He's number two right. on the 2021 max exit velo data sheet that I have. Yeah. And then the guy who's number one ahead of him is. Ibondel Isabel. Oh, sure. With Cincinnati <laughs> and like LA, who like, you know, people don't know about. He was traded at one point from the Dodgers to, to the Reds, and he's been near the top of the minor league max exit velo leaderboard in each of the years I've I've sourced a sheet for the uh, entirety of the minors. Trey Cabbage with Minnesota. Franchi Cordero's on here. Johan Mieses also with Boston, who has a thunderous talent in another infamous way in the baseball community uh, that I won't get into. Chris Gittens, who's been up near the top of this list for the last couple of years, signed yeah, in. He's Japan. a big boy. He's a giant guy. Oh, Justin wow. Yvonne Isabel is huge. He's a giant guy. Joe Adele is up here. Jose Siri is up here. Scott Schreiber. Like, it's the guys who you'd expect. Sam Huff. And then a bunch of other, like, names who you haven't heard about. Owen Casey, who's on the, the Cubs list, is... Tenth of a mile an hour faster than Julio Rodriguez. So yeah, like I don't know. There's definitely you just have to be able to hit. Like the skill to hit is still, I think, just the most important thing. I'd rather have Xavier Edwards and Nick Madrigal, whose max exit velos are close to 100 miles an hour. David Fletcher. Xavier Edwards not even the best field to hit guy traded in the Xavier Edwards trade though. That would say that's, that's Cronenworth. Oh, Cronenworth. Yeah, like they really did end up getting took on Cronenworth, um, which is going to feel good for the Padres, who otherwise have been took a little bit. Is Xavier Edwards, like, a really good field-to-hit guy? He is an ultra-short levered, like, good luck beating this guy with velocity. He's, like, 5'9". It is just, like, very, very little in-zone swing and miss. He's Sean Figgins-type player. I mean, he doesn't hit a lot of doubles, honestly. That's kind of surprising. Like, he's super fast, right? Yes, he is. He would be, like, you know, it's... You hope that he's Luis Castillo or, or Sean Figgins as like yeah. a slasher doubles guy who, yeah, he pokes one over the head of the third baseman and off he goes and then he's right. at second base. I kind of assumed that I'd see like, you know, no homers because I know he has hit no home runs. I definitely remember that from this year. But, you know, like 30 doubles or something. I guess he didn't bat that often, but 13 doubles. That's that's surprisingly few. Max 102.6 max exit velo for... um. Xavier Edwards, which is kind of surprising. I also Correct have Justin Yurchak is right next to him on this list, which is really surprising considering Yurchak's season. Uh, Justin Yurchak, that's a name for folks to file away for when the Rule 5 actually goes down. Um, he hit like, he hit almost 400 to double A. <laughs> wow, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, the fact that this guy's hit like this and, you know, the high-end exit velos are, are right in line with Xavier Edwards is kind of weird. All right, well, I'm going to keep doing prospect lists. I'm going to send you all this data so that you've got something to yeah. to ruminate on. And, and we'll talk about, I mean, good luck trying to get all this into a workable place where we can start to, all this source data, that our aim is to have like some understanding of the way players' measurable attributes are growing and changing during the course of their minor league careers. Um, so hopefully at some point, Ben and I will have published some stuff on that, but it's going to require... <laughs> a lot of work on scrubbing. getting this Some data scrubbing yeah into a position where it can be useful um because it's just me sourcing it from all sorts of random places from the last four years basically uh so all right well folks uh 
it's holiday time. Please, uh, if you have a baseball fan in your life who you are struggling to find um, a gift for, consider a Fangraphs subscription and one for yourself too if you don't already have one of those. Yeah, nothing wrong with getting yourself a gift. We appreciate everyone who's helping contribute to uh, the health of the site. For Ben Clemens, I've been Eric Longenhagen. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for producing. See you guys next time on Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with someone that you think would also enjoy it. It is the best way to help us grow the show. Don't forget to check out the Fangraphs shop and consider a membership, as well as go sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter, free to your inbox every weekday. It's a great way to keep up on everything we have going on. We hope you have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week.